Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyid al-Anbiya'i wa mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa ba'd. Alhamdulillah, first and foremost, we make a hamd and shukr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We show gratefulness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving us the ability that on this weekend, our free time, we are spending it in the cause of learning the deen of Islam. The fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you all the tawfiq to come here into one of the houses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just to better yourself, to improve yourself, to learn more about the zeen of Islam. This is a very, very great ni'mah. It's a very great bounty. We should make hamd and shukr incessantly for this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned, لَإِن شَكَرْتُمْ لَأَزِيدَنَّكُمْ if a person is grateful, if a person shows shukr and truly from the bottom of their heart he is grateful for a bounty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will increase him or her in that bounty. So this is something you don't necessarily have to do with your tongue, but this is something, an exercise of the heart. So take a moment and introspect. Connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right now. That, ya Allah, where I could have been. And like a lot of you, I also grew up here and we've had several friends who have adopted a different path. Maybe some of you here before, in the previous history of your life, maybe you were on a different path. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala slowly started guiding you through some friend, through some masjid, through some Ramadan nights. And then you were deciding that I'm going to change my life. And slowly, slowly that revolution begins, that internal revolution that change that comes in this is from the side of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah intends khayr and goodness so we should show shukr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's not a small thing what shaitan will do what iblis will do is that he will try to diminish it in your eyes in the eyes of sometimes our parents a lot of times especially when I was growing up sometimes the parents they don't want you to become too religious right they wish the best for you, but sometimes it's not always the best in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what something even the Sahaba had to go through. Abu Hurairah, his mother was a non-Muslim. And he was very, very, very yani, grieved. And he would request Rasulullah to make dua for his mother to accept Islam. So here, this is a continuing, continuing struggle that we are making. And we're trying to pave our way through life to get back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all of this, everything is centered around seeking knowledge, seeking ilm. This is the prerequisite before anything and everything else that we need to know what it is that we're trying to accomplish. If we have no knowledge, if we have no ilm, if we have absolutely no idea which direction, which path to follow, all of the energy and the effort in the world is not going to help and save us. By way of example, you can spend a full tank of gas. And the price of gas nowadays, we all know how expensive that is. But if you're going, if you're trying to reach DC, but you go on 95 South, will you ever, ever reach DC? Right? We have no GPS. Our bearing is off. Our knowledge is off. You are driving really fast. Your pedal is to the metal. You're spending that money on the gas. You're making the effort, but you're going in the wrong direction. You're never ever going to reach the destination because we don't have that requisite of knowledge. 
Now we're going to commence the talk. We're going to start off with a hadith and a narration of Rasulullah that basically underlines the importance of seeking knowledge. It's a very short hadith, it's a very simple hadith, but it's a very deep and profound hadith. And this is one of the barakah that Nabiya Kareem alayhi one of the ni'mah, one of the bounties that he was blessed with, that ana utitu al kalim. Amongst the things that Allah has blessed me with is concise speech. Deep, profound, but concise speech. Jawami al kalim. They're small statements, but they contain oceans and oceans and oceans of knowledge. And this is what we are trying to aspire for. Nabiya Kareem mentions that Talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslim wa fi riwayatin kulli muslimatin. Seeking knowledge is mandatory, it's farud. It's an obligation on every single Muslim male, in another narration, every single female as well. So brief, so concise. We have to, have to seek knowledge. It's farb. <coughs> if we do not seek knowledge, how are we going to fulfill all of the other injunctions of this deen of Islam? If we want to pray salah, which is farb, the farb al-ayn, it's the very first thing that a person will be asked about on the day of Qiyamah. Some narrations mention that if a person's salah is fine, if a person's salah is in order, then other affairs of his, inshallah, will be in order. So if a person needs to pray his salah, how does he perform the salah? What if you have a person praying thousands and thousands of raka'at in his life, but he didn't have wudu? Or he didn't have kamil, perfect wudu, and his salah is not accepted? Why? He didn't have knowledge. Oh, I didn't know that you're supposed to do this. I didn't know that you're supposed to do that. I didn't know that you have to go for ghusl. So ilm, it's mandatory. Why? Because it's a means, it's a sabab for all of the other faraid. If a person goes for hajj, and a hajj is a fard obligation, it's amongst the five pillars of the deen of Islam. If he goes for hajj and he doesn't perform his hajj properly, he misses the Maidan of Arafat. His Hajj will not be accepted. Tens of thousands of dollars spent on the biggest VIP tents and the first class airplanes and so much effort that is being made in the middle heat of the desert Arab lands. He's going there. He undertook so much effort. But he didn't know the fundamentals and the Arkan of Hajj. You have so many elements and so many masayah that a person needs to know to perform their hajj properly. So, talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslim wa ala kulli muslimatin. The sharihun and the commentators of hadith, now they begin to dissect the words. That if we're talking about seeking knowledge being fard, how is it fard? In what way is it fard? To what extent is it fard? Right? Now this is the job of the scholars and the ulama. They split hairs. They go in depth. Right? If you think of it as an ocean, they go deep, deep to the deepest abyss and ravine of that particular ocean. And they pick out all of these jewels and all of these pearls. And they explain to us, hair-splitting messiah. So that we can understand that, subhanAllah, this is our deen. It is so important. 
So they mentioned that for something to be fard, there are different types of fara'id. There's different types of fara'id. There's different types of obligations. One type of fard is what we call fard al-ayn. That this is fard, it's an obligation on every single individual. Every single one of us, every single unit within this ummah, it's fard on every individual. So the commentators of hadith and the ulama, they beautifully mention that if we're going to discuss the fard al-ayn aspect, then seeking knowledge is an obligation. But what type? Does that mean now that every single one of us has to quit their job? Every single one of us has to quit yani, our classes and our, and our studies and just find a local sheikh, an imam, a masjid, a madrasa, and then we have to just basically, that's it? Seek knowledge and only else, nothing else? They're like, no, this is obviously not what's intended. The intent of the deen of Islam is not to make every single individual, every single person seated here, an alim and a scholar of this deen. That's not the underlying intention. And when we look at the lives of the Sahaba, if we look at the society and the community that Rasulullah had built amongst the Sahaba, with approximately a hundred and some odd thousand Sahaba, not all of them were scholars. Not all of them were muftis. There was a handful of scholars in their midst, and we're going to go and discuss amongst them, because as you will see, the majority of them were youth. They were youngsters who studied the deen of Islam, at the feet of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the scholars, they mentioned that if we're talking about the fadl ayn aspect, then the type of knowledge that a person has to seek, they refer to it, they give it a specific title, which is called ilmul hal. That it's fadl and an obligation for us to understand ilmul hal. Now what is ilmul hal? This is that knowledge and that ulum that pertains to our own personal hal, our own personal situation. Whatever field that you are in, it becomes an obligation for you to know all of the requisite ulum behind your own situation, your own actions. As a Muslim, all of us have to pray salah. So it's a fard obligation for every single one of us to know all of the Messiah pertaining to our Salah in order that it can be accepted in the court of Allah. Those of us that Allah has blessed with finances, those of us who have reached the Nisab amount of wealth, those of us who are Shar'an, considered to be wealthy, it then becomes fard on those individuals to know the Messiah of Zakah. Because that is their Hal. Those who are not blessed and endowed with wealth, those who are not sahib al-nisab, they don't have to pay zakah. And if they don't have to pay zakah, they don't necessarily need to know the messiah of zakah. Those who are going to go for hajj, it becomes necessary for them to understand because that is their hal. They need to know all the requisite messiah that pertains to their, to their hajj. Those who are going to go in a specific field, those of us who are going to become entrepreneurs and businessmen, you're going to go into tijara and bay and buyu'a. It's going to become far than mandatory for you to learn and understand those messiah that pertain to you, your business. And this is a very huge calamity of our ummah of today. Let alone the fact that many of us don't know our normal religious messiah, 
Even in work, we don't know all the appropriate Messiah. We go working in different particular institutes, in different particular areas of field of business, and we have no idea that we are assisting and aiding and abetting in haram activity. When you go to a bank, and you get a job at a bank, and you become a bank teller, and your job and your duty entails that you have to sell loans to people, there's a quota that we need to ensure that so many people sign up for an interest-bearing loan. And we are selling this to the customer. Hi, how are you doing, sir? Do you, have you refinanced your home today? Do you know that we have very good interest rates? Right? We have very competitive rates. So we are involved in, and a lot of people, their eyes open up when you tell them that you are working in a very haram environment. You're aiding and assisting in sin. Some people that go in the medical field, and there's so many different avenues in the medical field. Sometimes a person becomes a surgeon and you become a cosmetic surgeon. What happens when you have an individual, because we know what society we live in, we know the halat and the situation on the ground, this is the LGBT's moment. And people undergo sex changes. And they want to change from a male to a female. They want to go under a breast augmentation. They want to do all kinds of things that is qualifies the definitive, linguistic definition of taghir li khalqillah. They want to change the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you're like, well, I'm a doctor. I'm a surgeon. And he performs those operations. You are aiding, assisting, and abetting in this heinous sin and crime against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's khalq and his creation. But we didn't know. I didn't know this. Well, this is not only the only operations that I do. I do other operations too. Well, this is the haram stuff. So this is what we call ilmul hal, that whatever you're engaged in, whatever field that you're going to get into, it becomes hard for us to sit with the scholars, to sit with the ulama and to study that are these actions of mine in line with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expects from me? Have we ever even asked that? When we go and we study which types of uloom is permissible for us to study? Right? When we go to the colleges, universities, and even high schools, certain things we're not even permitted to study. There is certain exceptions to the rule for the ulama and, and, and the scholars in order to combat certain things. But when you go and you study Darwinism, and then they put that because certain elements of Darwinism, as you know, is going to go against the narrative that is mentioned in the Holy Quran. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam alayhi salatu wasalam, sent him down onto the earth. Whereas when you go and you study a lot of this Darwinism in, 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 in ancient uh, Darwinist theories which have already been debunked already, then you get Neo-Darwinism that's coming into the mix, into the fold. And again, these are all theories. There are theories that are being passed as fact and we are studying under a particular... I'm telling you this because we have had relatives and friends who were influenced that when they went under a particular professor and a particular teacher and whatever that they take from that teacher, they take as fact. It can't be wrong because my teacher told me and my teacher has so many degrees. How can my teacher be wrong? They won't mind saying that the Qur'an is wrong. They don't mind saying that the deen of Islam is wrong. They don't mind to say that Nabi Allah is wrong. But my teacher can't be wrong. This is the environment that we're growing up in. 
So we have to be very, very conscious because we are putting ourselves, we are presenting ourselves in certain scenarios and cases of study that's going to directly affect our Iman. And this onslaught is taking place even with some of our youngsters and our children. Because I know you've read the articles or maybe you've seen certain uh, of, the, of the newscasts that in certain elementary schools they're starting to teach. They're starting to teach that there is no separate genders between male and female and all of these other yani, completely unfounded, baseless facts that they're trying to push and propagate upon us. Even if you look at the other religions, they're starting to worry that am I going to send my child under a teacher who's supposed to nurture and train my child? Is it permissible for us to allow our children to be exposed to that? Do we care about that? And no, 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 my child is not going to study this education. You go and you speak to the principal, and you go and you speak to the teacher. I want to see the curriculum. I want to see the books. I want to see the syllabus. I want to know what's going to be taught. So, talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslim, this comes under the fardal ayn of all of that. This is an obligation for all of us. But there's another type of ilm, which is called, sorry, there's another type of fardal, there's another type of obligation, and that's called fardal kifaya. Fardal kifaya. The word kifaya means it, suffi- it suffices, it's sufficient. So, this is a fard where it's not on every single individual. It will suffice a particular community, a particular society, that some of those individuals then go and they become experts in the field of Islam. They become the scholars, they become the qurra, they become the hafaz, they become the muftiyan. Now within a society, a segment of society, then it becomes fard on the society as a whole, on the community of a whole, that in this particular area, just like in i'tikaf, you know when we sit in i'tikaf? That's a sunnah, but that's a sunnah ala al-kifaya. In a particular town, in a city, when you have a masjid, you have a mosque, we need to ensure that some individuals within the community sit for i'tikaf to fulfill that sunnah. If nobody in a community, in a society is fulfilling that sunnah, then the entire community, the entire society is sinful for leaving out that great sunnah of Rasulullah But if one single individual stands up for that task in that masjid, then he has fulfilled that sunnah for the entire community. The entire community is absolved. So this is what we mean. Fard al-kifaya. Fard al-kifaya. So we need to ensure, like us as a community, as a society, it becomes a societal obligation that we need to ensure everybody comes together we need to put all of our resources together to create such an institute that where we can study, that where we can go to and ask our requisite Messiah. So this is, yani, at the very, very base level, the beginning and the understanding. Once we do this, what happens from there? And if we fail to do this, what happens from there? What if we fail in that obligation? What if we do not fulfill that requisite from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Nabi Kareem has also mentioned there's so many hadith and there's so many ayat. I just hope that we have enough time to cover everything. To come to the importance, first we're going to discuss a little bit about the importance. What if we don't do it? And then inshallah we're going to conclude with what if we actually do it? What if we actually fulfill this task? 
Nabi Karim to really get us to understand the importance of this, he has mentioned in the hadith, which I think it's very, very close to that time. I hope it's not. I love to be optimistic. It's sunnah to have optimism. But the hadith mentions that من أشرات الساعتي أن يرفع العلم ويثبت الجهل Amongst the signs of the day of Qiyamah One of the signs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen That you know what? Humanity has failed There's no hope left for humanity There's no hope left for us as a society The boat is sinking The ship is sinking And there's no najat There's no salvation What is that sign? أن يرفع العلم Knowledge will be lifted, knowledge will be taken away by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There will be no ilm left on the face of this planet earth. We'll be steeped in darkness. There'll only be vile and fuhash, immoral, immodest behavior. And upon those people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will destroy the entire universe, not just planet earth. It's not just planet earth, it's the entire creation the Milky Way and the other galaxies and as far as and beyond what the, te- the Hubble telescope can see. All of that will be destroyed. Why? Because people like us are not seeking knowledge. We have no care for this deen of Islam. We have no care for Quran. We have no care for the hadith of Rasulullah All we care about is the almighty dollar. All we care about is entertainment. All we care about is sports. All we care about is Netflix and movies. All we care about is having a good time. This is exactly what undermined the centuries of development in Islamic Spain. Islamic Spain. Andalus. If a person just goes through the annals and the pages of history, subhanAllah, there was a time in Islamic history in one city, the city of Qurtuba alone, there was 800 madaris, 800 different institutes of learning. In one city, could you imagine here in Springfield, if you had 800 different shuyukh teaching different sciences of Islam. In that particular era, the khalifa of that time was Imam Hakam Athani, rahimahullah ta'ala. They cherished books. The best thing, the most prized possession, nowadays for us is what? What well, used to be, Bitcoin. Went up pretty high, didn't it? Up until recently. Their most prized possession wasn't Bitcoin, wasn't crypto, and it wasn't gold, and it wasn't silver. They would lavishly spend their gold and silver. What did they prize more than gold and silver? The books of history even mention because most of us here are men and most of you are young men and I know the passions that flow through your veins. For a lot of us, what do we even value and cherish more than money itself? Mostly, what do men use money for? You're too shy to say it, I'll say it for you. It's for the opposite gender, it's for the female. And that's why they're being used in so many advertisements for us to spend our money. What does a barely clad, half-nude woman have to do with toothpaste? Yet it works. We're attracted to that. They even name the toothpaste after that, close up. Right? And there's obviously some attractive woman behind that. What does a female have to do with an oil change and jiffy lube and all these other things? But yet, society uses that woman as an object of desire 
Because that's where us men will begin to spend that money. So in Andalusia, in those times, they used to have, this slavery was still involved. They used to still have slavery. So with a general population, especially amongst men, the most beautiful slave woman fetched a very high price. Because this is something that the nafs desires. It's something that the passions have a desire for. But society came to such a level that they began to overlook that too. That you're so crude. Are you still going after your shahawat? They would cherish and value manuscripts and books of knowledge. Look, I have this particular copy of the Muatta of Imam Malik. And it's his own personal nuskha. It's a nuskha of his student. It's a nuskha of a student of a student. And they would show that off between other people. And that would be so valuable. So valuable. Imam Hakam Athani, rahimahullah ta'ala, coming back to him, he would make an open, open announcement to the entire world of that time. That, oh, scholars of the world, not just only of Andalusia, oh, scholars of the world, come to us. Come to our country. Come to our town. I will undertake all of your expenses, whatever expenses that you have to undertake to come to us. We have all of these madaris. We have all of these shiyukh. We have all of these books. And we're talking about books. In this particular town of Qurtuba, their library contained approximately 400,000 volumes of books, 400,000 different works and manuscripts. In one library, and they mentioned throughout the whole annals of history that the very next religion that came close were the Christians, the Christians of Spain, right? Those of us who know history, um, and in Europe as well. So they said that the, the closest competition that we had was in France. You have here Andalusia, 400,000 works of Islamic any literature. And the closest that they can come to in the city of Sorbonne was 2,000. 2,000 books versus 400,000 books. No wonder they were in their dark ages and we were in our state of enlightenment. So Imam Hakim Athani, rahimahullah ta'ala, he makes that proclamation to the entire world. You come here, I'll undertake all of your expenses. You will have a stipend from the side of the government. You will have housing, you will have Medicare, you will have all of these things. And any scholar from any field, if you translate any work from any language, anything that has academic value to it, if you translate that work into the Arabic language, I'll give you the weight of that book in gold. See how much they spent? See how much they cherished knowledge? You want to go and study there's a book in astronomy in the Greek language, in the Yunani language. Translate that old historical work into the Arabic language so our Islamic scholars can then access it. I'll give you the weight of that book in gold. If it's 50 volumes long and that thing weighs about 20 pounds, I'll give you 20 pounds of gold. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars are being spent on education and they reach the heights. But what was the downfall of Andalusia? From that heyday of Islam, indulge, they indulged in entertainment. 
right? All of the finer arts, right? Plays and all these other things. The people dropped the ball. Their desire for learning began to ebb. It just started to just decline and decline. And they're more interested now in the luxurious and the finer ornaments and the finer things of life. Until finally when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was completely just, this is it, your fate is sealed. April Fool's Day, we've heard of April Fool's Day, right? 1492 is not only the year of the Columbus and all that journey that sailed, it's the time when the Muslims got kicked out, evicted from their homelands. Go and visit Islamic Spain. Go and see yani, all of the masajid that were there. And this, we should start crying tears of blood. That what we had and what we have become. So there's a lesson in it for us. Now the whole entire world, as a, now the world has become smaller. It's a global village anyway. When the whole entire world begins to act like that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will evict us from this whole entire dunya. And not just us, the entire creation that we're done with. So, إِنَّ مِنْ أَشْرَاتِ السَّعَةِ أَنْ يُرْفَعِ Amongst the signs of Qiyamah is that knowledge will be lifted. How it will be lifted, we've already discussed that before. Nabiya Kareem mentions in a hadith that إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَقْبِضُ الْعِلْمَ إِنْتِزَاءً Allah will not snatch away the knowledge. It's not that we're going to wake up in somehow, way, shape or form that we're not going to remember anything of Qur'an. Yesterday I knew the whole of Surah Baqarah, today I barely even know. I got Alzheimer's or something. It's not going to happen like that. How is it going to happen? وَلَكِنْ يَقْبِذُهُ بِقَبْذِ الْعُلَمَاءِ How it will happen? Allah will take away this knowledge by taking away the lives of the scholars. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take them away from us one by one, one by one. We need to know who the ulama are, who are the scholars. We're talking about those people. We're not talking about a person who took a six-month course of Arabic from some online institute and thereafter he becomes... And he is very interesting because I, I, I read it on some article or somebody sent it on WhatsApp chat or something and I found it very amusing. Right? I found it very amusing and I found it very funny, but normally even in Arabic, that uh, the most vile of things, Sharul umur yudhik, the most vile and the most wicked of things, they make you laugh. Right? This is human psychology. A person studied a little bit, just a splattering of the Arabic language, learned a couple of surahs of Qur'an. So first he becomes brother so-and-so, and after a while he becomes ustad so-and-so. And they give him a couple of more months when he's in the society, he becomes sheikh so-and-so. And by the time he dies, he's alama so-and-so. But he only had those six months of study. It's because this is how society, and you kind of give that respect. But we're not talking about those types of scholars. The scholars that we're talking about are those who have devoted and dedicated and struggled their entire lives to studying in-depth Qur'an, hadith, fiqh, aqidah, and the works. They sleep, eat, and drink ilm and ulum. Those are the scholars that we are talking about. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes their lives away, the silsila, this chain will continue and continue and continue. Ask yourself, have I even seen such a scholar like that? We have in our midst, mashallah, we'll have people that are around and they have to some extent some knowledge, but those types of shuyuk, you really have to meet them and see them 
to know that subhanAllah that is a shaykh eh? and they've dedicated their lives for it very 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 few and they are passing away one by one and one by one and one by one and the hadith mentions this will continue to happen this will continue and continue in society that not even a single scholar will remain and when not a single scholar is there, what are the people going to do? What are our children going to do? The people will take as their leaders, the people will take as their imams, the people will take as their teachers and their ustads, johalan, ignoramuses, ignoramuses, right? And there's different types of jahala. A jahil, an ignorant person, is a person who doesn't have knowledge. To some extent, this isn't that bad. Because why? He confesses and he understands. He knows that he doesn't know. So he confesses that, I'm sorry brother, I don't know. Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala, when he was asked repeatedly hypothetical questions and he was tested in his fiqh, Approximately 40 questions were put to him. Ya Shaykh, what is this fatwa here? Ya Shaykh, what is the fatwa there? Ya Shaykh, what about this? Ya Shaykh, what about that? Q&A session. To 32 of the 40 questions, he said, La Adri, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Right? When he was asked of him, what do you know? Because this is what we would do. Man, this Shaykh doesn't know anything. He's like, I know what I know. I know, I know what I don't know. Right? It doesn't mean that you have to know everything right now. I can get you the answer. Imam Malik was such that he disliked, he abhorred hypothetical fiqh. If you are going through a situation, ask me. Don't ask me what you think is going to happen tomorrow because this is wasting my time. Don't ask about things that haven't happened. This is his own personal thing. The Hanafis on the other side, they're on the other way. They're like, we have to be prepared. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimullah, in essence, he was like an imam of hypothetical fiqh. That we as scholars, if we don't have the answer, then who's going to have the answer? So before it happens, we need to be prepared. Some of the students of Imam Malik at that particular time, when they would propose, they would actually present all of these hypothetical scenarios, Imam Malik would become perturbed that don't ask me. This is a fitna. Don't ask me unless you are not involved in this. But when they kept on asking, kept on asking, he says, you know what? I think you should go to Iraq. I think I should go, should, you should go to Kufa. You should study under those ulama over there because this is how they study. That's not the way how I study. So coming back to what we're discussing, La Adri, and he mentions this, La Nadri, the ulama mentions this, La Adri Nisful Ilm. To say I don't know is half of knowledge. To already say that, to confess that, for yourselves to believe that about yourself that to be honest with you I am a jahil right normally when a person has a sickness and those of you who know about yani, the different types of addictions that people have whether it's a psychological addiction a chemical addiction and all of these things check out Alcoholics Anonymous and all these other drug intervention programs when a person has an ailment what's the very first biggest hurdle that a person has to overcome denial you have to admit, you have to confess, I got a problem. I have an issue. Our sickness is jahala. I don't know. But we, and I'm talking about because I've gone through this. A lot of times, 
especially when we're younger, and a lot of times the sickness doesn't go away, it establishes itself and it becomes, it becomes a, a strong foothold in us even when we're older, we don't know, but we like to pretend like we know. And you know it because anytime we have our Eid celebrations, there's always that one uncle that we have, right? Every one of us has that uncle. When you're trying to talk about certain Messiah and they act as if they know everything, but they don't even know how to recite Surah Fatiha, I'll tell you. You know what this ayat is talking about? And they come up with their own understanding from their own mind. This is an ailment. This is a sickness. This is a disease. So, la adri nisful ilm, to say I don't know, to acknowledge I don't know, nisful ilm, you're already halfway there on your journey. Now, the more dangerous type of jahala, and this is what in Arabic they refer to as jahal al murakkab. Al jahal al murakkab. Compound ignorance. Compound ignorance. Those of us who are in the finance field, you know there's interest and there's compound interest, which is interest on top of interest. Compound jahala is jahala on top of jahala. It's jahala to the power of jahala. Jahala squared. That's jahal murakkab, and that's dangerous. Because a person doesn't know, but just like that uncle, he doesn't know that he doesn't know. Or he's not willing to admit that he doesn't know. And he actually thinks he knows. Now this is going to be the leader of those people when the ulama begin to pass away. They don't know diddly squat. They don't know anything about the deen of Islam. But yet here they are. Fasu'ilu, the hadith mentions, these people, they'll be asked questions. Fa'afta'u bighayri ilm, they'll pass fatwa without any single iota of knowledge. Afta'u bighayri ilm, they'll pass fatwas and decrees and give you answers without not even an iota of knowledge. They don't even know that they don't know. How is the ummah going to survive? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to turn to? Remember the example of going on 95 South and trying to reach D.C.? I'm trying my level best. I'm trying to get right with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but I went to the wrong shaykh. He's not even a shaykh. And I asked him, and he gave me fatwa, so I did whatever he told me. So you see what a serious problem that we have? Now this is if we don't do the right thing. Let's go on the other side. What happens if we do do the right thing? And I hope I have enough time. I like to open the floor for questions, so that's why I just make, I need to make sure I get enough time for you guys to ask questions. So I'm going to try to make this part a little bit more concise. One ayah of the Holy Qur'an mentions, which will serve as a basis that we'll build on, inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that يَرْفَعِ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَالَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمَ دَرَجَاتِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will elevate the status of the mu'minun and the believers in general. This is normal. But towards the end of the verse, khusus and specifically amongst the mu'minun who are the cream of the crop of the believers, who have the highest maqam in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after the anbiya, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will elevate their status darajat. And who are they? Those alladheena utul ilm, those people that were granted and gifted knowledge. Just by the way that this word form is there, it opens up our mind, subhanAllah. We cannot acquire knowledge. We cannot attain ilm. All that we do is we undertake the difficulties and that sojourn and that journey and that path. And if we are sincere and if we make the requisite juhd and sacrifice, 
then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant us that uloom. He'll grant us that knowledge. You can't just attain it. It's not like I did all the hard work so the fruits will automatically come. Just like when you farm, I'm going to take this seed, I'm going to put it into the ground, I'm going to do a lot of manual labor, I'm going to water that thing, I'm going to make sure it gets its sunlight, I'm going to do all of the requisite work that I have to do for years and years on end. But at the end, is there any guarantee that it will bear fruit? It's no guarantee. Something could have gone wrong in the midst. That I'm sorry, the crop this year has failed. There was a tornado, there was a hurricane, there was some sort of nutrient that's missing in the soil. We have a very bad harvesting season this year. I'm sorry, people. By the very same analogy, you put in all that effort, you put in all that hard work, but if there's something missing, if there's no ikhlas, if there's no sincerity, if there's no respect and adab for your shuyukh, if there's no respect or adab for your books, if there's no respect or adab for the Qur'an, you can try and kill yourself and put all the effort that you want. You're not going to get the knowledge. You will not get ilm. You'll get information. Information. Information and knowledge are two separate things. The knowledge that we're talking about is a spiritual knowledge. It's a traditional knowledge. So here Allah SWT mentions, yani just by way of ishara, Allah will elevate the status of those people ilm, who are given knowledge, who are given this nur. Don't be deceived and do not be deluded. There are many, many Orientalist scholars out there who are non-Muslims who are either Jewish or atheists who know better Arabic and who understand Quran more than we do. They know the tafsirs and they go under but their aim and objective is to do what? It's to subvert Islam from within. Are those people ulama? They're not ulama. They're people who have information. They are not scholars of deen. Part of this ilm, part of this knowledge is taqwa and the fear of Allah and the obedience to Allah. So here Allah SWT has mentioned, yes, Allah SWT will raise the status of those people that Allah SWT had bestowed with knowledge and ilm. But how does this happen? How do we see this happen? And I'm going to give you some examples. Inshallah, I'll try to conclude with that. The very first, the example that we present for you is nothing other than our forefather Adam alayhi salatu wasalam, the whole paradigm of humanity, the father of all of insan, Adam alayhi salatu wasalam. وَإِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ إِنِّي جَائِلٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions there that remember the time when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was having discourse with the angels and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is explaining to them that inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifa I'm going to place a khalifa on the face of this earth I'm going to place a khalifa on the, play, on the, on the face of this earth and what exactly is a khalifa? khalifa is a substitute most of us are school students here what happens when your teacher is sick one day? it's a substitute teacher what is a substitute teacher? they take the place of the teacher and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning, I'm going to put on the face of this earth my khalifa. As a human being, every single one of us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's plan for us was to become his khalifa. You are a substitute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself on the face of this earth. Allah will not walk. We do not have the aqidah of the Christians that Jesus is God in flesh. 
that Jesus Isa Alisam is God incarnate, that he walked on the face of this earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, subhanallah, far be transcendent be far beyond any kind of such false aqidah. So if Allah Himself is not going to walk on this particular earth, then how is the ahkam and the injunctions and the rulings and the sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the plan and the constitution that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had in mind for humanity? How is that going to be implemented? Through yourselves and through myself and all of us, that we were supposed to be the Khalifatullah. Now the angels, when they saw this, and we see the creation of Adam والسلام, they really didn't feel that he was up for that task. I mean, I hate to use the word, it's a very, any incorrect term to use, but I, English is a very limited and handicapped language. In, in, in school teams, in sports, you always have the underdog. <coughs> the underdog, right? What is the underdog? The person that nobody has, they're not going to make it. Nobody has any hope or any aspirations. They're losers. They're not going to make it. You call that person the underdog. So the malaika, not to say that they would ever use that term, far be it, subhanAllah, yani it's not an appropriate term to use, but they had their reservations about Adam alayhi salatu wasalam. Right? And they had put their objections before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That, that, oh Allah, are you going to put as your Khalifa on the face of this earth such individuals who are going to cause mischief and shed blood? They're only going to worry about partying and having a good time and entertainment. They're going to go around killing people, stealing from people, raping people, pillaging. Is, is that your intent for a Khalifa? Because this is what they knew. And this is what their expectation was. Why? Because this is what the jinnat were doing before insan. So they had no aspirations that this is going to happen. But what did Allah SWT mention? Inni a'lamu ma la ta'lamun. I, Allah, I know what you don't know. And what is the sex subsequent thing mentioned right after that? Wa'allama adama al-asma'a kullaha. Ilm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself, he was a teacher. He taught Adam alayhi salatu wasalam the names of all the things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught Adam alayhi salatu The Mufassirun mentioned by virtue of this ilm and this knowledge, this is what entitled Adam alayhi salatu wasalam and by extension the humanity to the Anbiya and to the Prophets to supersede the level of even the angels because of their capability of knowledge and them undertaking this task. So for us, if we want to be elevated, see Adam alayhi even Iblis was the teacher of the angels for a time. He was the teacher of the angels for a time. What was Iblis and Shaitan doing in Jannah? Because Shaitan wasn't Shaitan all the time. Right? He was a teacher of the angels and he had knowledge, he had ulum. He had takabur. And he didn't have ikhlas. He had ujub and vanity and pride. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-alim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-khabir, the most knowledgeable, the most aware. And to make this manifest, to bring out that takabur and that pride of Iblis in front of everyone, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this particular majlis, 
The angels are there. Adam are there. Iblis is there. And Allah SWT ordered everyone to bow down before Adam. That is sharaf. That is honor. When Allah SWT taught Adam salam, and Adam salam elevated his status, all the angels are bowing down, not out of sajda of ibadah, but out of sajda, kind of like how we make sajda to the Kaaba. It's the direction, it's the qibla. Our sajda is for Allah. But it's in this particular direction. So that is respect, that is sharaf, that is izzat, that is honor. But Iblis, Aba, was takbara. He refused, to, he refused to make that sajda, he refused to bow down, and he was full of pride. Ana khayrun minhu. I'm better than this guy. You created me from fire. This element that burns, and he, that then he ravages. It's got so much strength, it's got so much power. Fire. Have you ever seen a fire flame going downward? Take a lighter and hold it upside down. What happens to the flame? It's going to burn your finger because it's going to turn right side up. And, and Adam khaqtahumintin, you create him from dirt. You create him from soil. It's trampled under the feet. Very humble. It's a lesson. If we're going to start learning, we need humility. Right? We need to be submissive before Allah. And that pride of shaitan and iblis, despite the fact that he had, did he have knowledge or did he have information? He didn't have knowledge. There was no taqwa. There was no piety. He had information. Imagine if any one of us takes shaitan as our shaykh. He's got the knowledge. He's got the information. He doesn't have the taqwa. So coming back to Adam salam, see where to where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala debased Iblis, debased Shaitan and flung him down and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevated Adam salam because Adam salam had ilm, he had knowledge, Iblis had information. Now this is one example, I'm getting very short on time, I'll just give you one, two more examples inshallah. In Sahih Muslim, there's a riwayah, the rawi is Umar ibn Khattab anhu. But there's a backdrop behind this particular narration. And the backdrop is that during his khilafah and during his governance, when he was the Khalifatul Muslimin, he's got control of cities and towns and a vast empire that stretches from the east to the west. Now from this whole Islamic empire, what is the one city that like, stands out the most out of this whole Islamic empire? We even call it Ummul Qura, the mother of all towns, the mother of all cities, Makatul Mukarrama. He himself is in Medina Munawra because the Islamic Imarat was in Medina at that particular time. But Makkah Mukarrama, the Baytullah, the Kaabatullah, the house of Allah is there. The Quraysh were living over there, which was the highest, highest ranking tribe of that particular time. So he asks some of his people, right, his cabinet members that who is in charge? Who has been appointed as the mayor, as the governor, whatever title you want to give him? Who is the Amir over Makkatul Mukarrama? So the cabinet members they responded that uh, we have appointed Ibn Abi Abza. We have appointed Ibn Abi Abza. Who is Ibn Abi Abza? Who is this individual? I don't know him. The response comes, who a Mawlan min Mawalina. He's one of our freed slaves. He is one of our freed slaves. Stop right there. Freed slave? Right? 
His former life, he was owned by another person. We don't have slavery. Slavery is gone. We don't even understand the concept of slavery. But you are owned by somebody else. I own you. You are mine. You don't even own your own neck. The slaves were on the, the most bottom, bottom, bottom of the ebb of society. Right? Trampled upon by people. So this is where he came from. Bilal he was a freed slave. But let's see what the deen of Islam did to him. He elevated and elevated and elevated. Up until Nabiya Karim Islam puts him on the top of Kabbalah to give the Adhan. See, when we make the sacrifices, from where to where we go. This is what I used to be and this is what Islam took to me. This is where Islam brought to me. Ibn Abi Abza is another example. So Umar he asks, he wants to know more information about this individual. That how can a former freed slave, how can he be the Amir over the people like Quraysh, who are the former slave owners, who are the former government, you know, the government offices and all of these other things. The whole of Mecca was under their control. They're the custodians. How can this happen? What happened? So he explains to him that who al Quran wa al-Muddin. That he is a hafiz of the Holy Quran. Qari in those days meant he was a hafiz of Holy Quran. He has memorized every single verse of the Holy Quran. And not only is he just knowing the words, not only has only memorized Quran, but he's an alim as well. He's endowed and he's bestowed with ilm. Then Umar al understood and he didn't object. He didn't object. But he quotes and he narrates the hadith of Nabi Kareem salam. And he mentions... And this is quoted in Sahih Muslim. That Nabi Kareem mentions that Inna Allaha. Right? Those of you who know Arabic language, this is that Jumla Ismiya. And the focal point of that sentence is the name Allah. Inna Allaha. If they wanted to, the structure of that sentence could be completely different. It could be a Jumla Fi'liya. It could be a verbal sentence, which is a normal way. In the Arabic language, when you want to utter something, you normally make it a Jumla Fi'liya. Right? You put a fail, you put a verb, and then you put the doer of the subject of that verb, and you carry on with the sentence. But when you flip it this way, and you give taqeed with an inna, it changes everything. The focal point is Allah. Verily, Allah has done this. The very same Allah who elevated the status of Adam alayhi salatu salam. Nabi Kareem mentions, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَرْفَعُوا بِهَادَ الْكِتَابِ أَقْوَامًا Truly, verily, it is Allah. It is Allah Himself. That's how you translate it. Allah Himself is the one who lifts up. He lifts and He elevates the status of those individuals whom Allah wishes by virtue of this book, by virtue of this Qur'an. And it is Allah. It is Allah Himself. By again virtue of this book, who debases others. Allah elevated Adam and debased Iblis and Shaytan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevated Ibn Abi Abza to the position of the Amid and put him up here. And he debased those who turned their backs on the Quran that I have to then follow the order of this Amid. That's what knowledge and ilm does. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevates our status. Now these are two examples of individuals. I'll give you one or two examples and suffice on that, that this as a society, one example I already gave you in Qurtuba, in Andalusia, in Islamic Spain, 
when they undertook all of the requisite juhud and sacrifice, all the toils, all the finances, everything that was required of them to do to invest in knowledge, they did do that. And they became the center of the Islamic empire of the recent past. And when they deserted the Quran, when they turned towards entertainment, when they turned too much towards amusement, to plays, which nowadays akin to movies, to music, to entertainment, to the finer arts, and they left the deen of Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala debased them and turned them upside down. They got evicted. Right? They became the butt of everybody's joke. <coughs> so one final example that I will give, that how as a society, how as a community, there's an example, when we fast forward, we started with the Khilafah of Umar al Right? And we're going to end off in the Khilafah of Ali ibn Abi Talib During the Khilafah of Umar al-Faruq There was a piece of land right? Real estate It was arid desert lands Completely dry, nothing is there Barren as a bone, nothing on it Umar al-Anhu mentions to his people To his cabinet members, to the scholars, to the ulama I want to inhabit this barren, dry, arid piece of land. It's just dirt. It's no man's land. It's waste land. I want to inhabit and I want to develop this land. So he starts to send the Sahaba from Medina Munawwara to Kufa in Iraq. 1,500 Sahaba. Right? At the behest of Umar anhu, they start going to inhabit these lands. And finally, the cream on the crop, the pinnacle of all of that. And Umar anhu mentions to the people of Kufa, as this town is beginning to develop, he speaks to them, he sends them a letter, and he says, O citizens of Kufa, O people of Kufa, I have preferred you over myself. I am giving preference to you over myself. Because now I'm going to send to you Abdullah ibn Mas'ud He was one of a very select few amongst the Sahaba who was granted the ijaz of the past fatwa. I need him to be by me here, right? In the capital center in Medina Munawwara. But I will allow him to migrate into Kufa. And when he was sent there, there was no Islamic science that he wasn't teaching. When you're talking about Hifz al-Qur'an, he had students that would memorize Qur'an. When you're talking about the, the field of Qira'ah, recitation of Qur'an, when you're talking about the field of Aqidah and Fiqh and Hadith, he was, he was a one-man madrasa. Teaching and learning and teaching and learning and teaching and learning. His full devotion and dedication was just in the teaching and learning, passing on the legacy. The mirath of Nabi Kareem salam, he's passing it around wholesale. Now when Ali who comes to visit Kufa, I've heard a lot of Kufa. Let me see what's going down in Kufa. He visits there and he sees that subhanAllah, can you imagine if you come into a town and this town is filled with students and scholars and all of them have their books and they have their pens. All of them have taqwa and piety and they're sacrificing and this is what they're doing, they're dedicating their lives to. It's like the Ashab al-Sufa on steroids. 
Subhanallah, I've come to this town and I see everywhere students and scholars and qurra and hufaz, muftiyan kiram, shuyukh, and subhanallah. So he comes to Abdullah bin Masood and he says, Yarhamakallah, that may Allah have mercy upon you. Mala'ta hadha al-balad, ilman, you have filled this entire city with knowledge. Every corner that I see, every direction that I look, I see students everywhere. May Allah have mercy upon you. Subhanallah, he was astonished and amazed. What one individual can do. Now what happens? When the Khilafah of Umar comes to an end, then comes the Khilafah of Uthman for approximately another eight years after that. When his Khilafah comes to an end, what happens? Ali becomes the Khalifa. What happens then? Look what happened to this whole town of Kufa. Before it was a wasteland, barren desert land, no man's land. Now the Khilafat, in a span of just a couple of decades, the capital of Islam moves from Medina Munawra to Kufa. This is now the capital of the Islamic Empire. The Khalifa is living in Kufa. How did it reach this maqam? How did it reach this level? Because of that ilm, because of that knowledge, because of that sacrifice for ilm. So see what knowledge does. Allah subhanahu ta'ala is the one. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by virtue of this knowledge that will elevate our status. So the previous example that I give, that if we drop the ball, humanity is destroyed. But if we take this flag, in the olden times when the Muslims go to war, you would have the liwa, the flag, the flag of Islam. When they would go into battle and the flag bearer would go down because he would be made shaheed, somebody else will hold up that flag and carry that banner forward. When one scholar passes away, we need people who are ready to take that flag of Islam to the next generation, for the next leg of that relay. If we're not going to pick up that flag, then we're all dead. So this is where I'd like to terminate the discussion. May Allah give us all the tawfiq to understand. You should have that jazbah inside. That, ya Allah, Ya Allah, I want to be that flag bearer. Give me the opportunity, Ya Allah. I will take that flag and I'm going to run with it, Ya Allah, to the future. Future generations, I don't care what comes my way. I am that mujahid. I will take that flag with its huck and fulfill its huck. Ya Allah, I don't care what kind of sacrifices. Nobody's asking you to go and sacrifice your life. Nobody's asking you to go get shot up or to get cut up. We're asking you to hit the books. We're asking you to make jihad against Netflix, against YouTube and TikTok, and go hit the Quran, read the Quran, study the Quran, memorize Quran, study the Hadith, study the Arabic language. That is our juhud and that is our struggle and our sacrifice of today. So who amongst you is ready to take up that flag? That's a question. It's an open-ended question. Inshallah, later on, a Sheikh Maulana Hudayfa, he's going to explain to you that there are classes that we have lined up and ready for you. You can start. Yani, I don't care what your schedule is. You give us a little bit of time, Inshallah. We're going to ensure that there's some sort of program for us, all of us, to learn something, Inshallah. But before that, I'll open up the floor to any questions that anybody might have for the remainder of the time. How much time do we have approximately? About 15 minutes, inshallah. So we'll give about 10 minutes if there's any questions that anybody has. I'm really sorry. I'd like to apologize to the sisters because time is so short. 
I had so many examples of even our, our sisters who had studied and sacrificed and also yani, passed on this legacy of ulum. If Allah gives us tawfiq on another occasion, inshallah, I'll dedicate the whole entire discussion to our female scholars and alimat who also carried this flag. Right? I'll just suffice three out of the four main imams that we follow in fiqh. You have Imam Abu Hanifa, you have Imam Malik, you have Imam al-Shafi'i, you have Imam ibn Ahmad, uh, Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah ta'ala. Three of these four were orphans and they were raised by their mothers and their mothers were instrumental in their uloom and their mothers were also scholars and alimat. They understood the importance of ilm and uloom. Inshallah, I'm going to save that topic for another occasion. Any questions right now? Don't feel shy, it's fine. <coughs> you don't have to be quiet, it's okay. This is a time when you can speak. <laughs> yes? question for those who couldn't hear <clears throat> brothers like sometimes we have and this happens to a person that you you get into the groove you want to memorize Quran so you start memorizing some some verses or a couple of surahs but after that the consistency is not there right you kind of get diverted um, your attention goes elsewhere so how can an individual basically stay more focused and, he, and kind of complete their memorization of Qur'an. This, it's not going to be easy. Like, there is no easy... We're in the microwave generation. We put in something in the microwave, and 10 seconds later, we accept something, we expect something to come out. We want microwave hibs. We want to, like, 10 seconds go somewhere, and we all, boop, come out as a, as a hafiz of Qur'an. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to require juhud. It's going to require sacrifice. So what does the word sacrifice mean? I give one thing up in lieu of something else. This is also called tijara. This is also called bayt. Our whole lives, this is what we're doing. We're making tijara with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah adulukum ala tijaratin. Allah subhanahu mentioned, should I not inform you of a most beautiful tijara? Right? Tunjikum min adabin alim. It's going to save you from a very tormentful punishment and painful punishment. Right? So this, our lives is bartering. We are bartering, we are selling our dunya for our akhirah. The kuffar are selling their akhirah for the dunya. And by way of extension is our hivs, is our studies, is our everything else. Because this is just an a, a, a offshoot or a branch off of that. I need to sacrifice my Netflix time for the Qur'an. I need to sacrifice my sports time for the Qur'an. I need to sacrifice three hours of eating at some uh, restaurant for the Qur'an. When everybody else is hanging out and is having a good old time, we're not doing anything. Like, brothers, I'm sorry, mashallah, I enjoyed being with you guys, but I gotta go back to my Qur'an. That sacrifice that we do, we give up this temporary fun of just wasting time for the Qur'an, that sacrifice is what gives us rafu darajat, and we begin to get elevated in status. Those people that will do that and they'll make that sacrifice, 
they're the ones that will get paid by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here and in the akhirah. Those that don't do that, you're really sacrificing your free time. You're sacrificing your time for Quran, for Netflix, for a movie, for just hanging out and having a good old time. There's nothing wrong with having some fun. But there's a limit, there's a had. Right? So we just need to ponder and think about that. That what do I want for myself? Do I really want the khair and the barakah and the rafa darajat and the blessings? So these types of halaqat are just to remind us that that is way more worth it. Right? Than just killing time. Killing time. We're just killing time. Wasting time. What did we benefit from all that? Nothing. We weakened our eyesight. We dumbed down our brains. We started getting a fat belly. What benefit did we get out of sitting there as a couch potato and just watching Netflix all day long? Right? Nothing. <coughs> so that's basically, in short, the answer kind of the thing that we need juhud, juhud, sacrifice. We need to keep in mind the goal. But shaitan, he tries to make us forget the goal. He just makes you want to focus here on the now. Oh, this is so nice. It's so pretty. It's so shiny. It's so great. I really want some. So all we do is we have short vision. We can only see here. We cannot see what's all the way over there. So we have to know the plot and the ploy of shaitan and how he works. It's like, yeah, this is just, Yanni, it's a bottle of water. It's a bottle of Coke. It's a, a hamburger. It's a, whatever it is. It's a, te- temporary, a temporary enjoyment. It's like short-lived. Yeah, I'll take a sip and I'm going to carry on. I'm going to focus on my Quran. Simple as that. Sounds simple, but when you actually do it, again, we need the mujahid. We need the guy to make that sacrifice. So you have to be the one to make that sacrifice. What's up? You mentioned that there's knowledge and there's information. How do you make sure that you're you're somebody that's attaining the knowledge that's actually helping your spirituality? Very beautiful question, mashallah. You're very attentive. He's basically saying the question is that we have knowledge, which is ilm, which is warathatul anbiya, the inheritance of the prophets according to the hadith. Then we have information. So how can we ensure that we gain ilm versus just only gaining information? So this basically, there's two main aspects to this. Number one, a person needs to have taqwa. What taqullah? Yu'allimukum Allah. Allah SWT mentions the Quran. Fear Allah. Have taqwa Allah of Allah SWT. Really fear Allah. Be obedient to Allah. Allah SWT will then teach you. Allah will teach you. Again, Allah is the teacher. Allah is the bestower of knowledge. Fear Allah. Innama yakhshallaha min ibadihi al-ulama. This one is backwards. There it's ittaqullah wa yu'allimukum Allah. Fear Allah and then Allah will teach you. Here is innama yakhshallah. What's the difference between khashiyat and taqwa? Taqwa is the fear of Allah. Khashiyat is the fear of Allah. Innama yakhshallah min ibadihi. Amongst the servants of Allah. Who are the people that truly fear Allah? Al-ulama is the scholars. So taqwa and ilm go hand in hand. You cannot have an alim who doesn't have taqwa. It can't exist. You just have a person, Yani, who is, we could call him maybe a mukhbar, a person who was informed. Right? Sahib al khabar or ikhbar. He's not an alim. He's got information. Right? 
So for us, number one, we need to ensure that whatever we learn, we put into practice. We know Umar Farooq, how long did it take him to memorize Surah Baqarah? Anybody know? Okay. 13 years, 12 years, 8 years, you have different ikhtilaf riwayah, right? So let's assume, let's take a safe thing. Let's say it took him one decade to memorize Surah Baqarah. Why would it take him so long? Right? They were of the highest level of Arabic, yani their understanding of, of uh, the intricacies of the Arabic language was very easy for them. They were the masters of the Arabic language, so it wasn't that. Why did it take him so long to learn Surah Baqarah? They wouldn't learn the next verse until they understood this verse, understood all of the ahkam of this verse, put that verse into practice, and then move on to the next verse. There's no point of me just learning, 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 and never putting anything into practice. That is the taqwa. We need to have ilm wa amal. Ilm, put it into practice, and fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the same time, that becomes ilm. Minus taqwa, it's information. We know it, but we don't put it into practice, so what's the point of it? You know? But the second part, Ghaliban, if I remember correctly, if my memory serves me correct, it was uh, Ibn Asirin, rahimahullah ta'ala, where he mentions, and he's kind of conscientizing the students of that particular time, that, uh, what's the statement that's eluding me right now? The translation, I'll give you the translation, the Arabic is just not coming to my mind right now. But be cautious and be weary that who you take your knowledge from. Right? Be very cautious and be very weary of who you take your knowledge from. Because this knowledge is your deen. This knowledge that we're talking about is your deen. When you are going and you are sitting with certain, certain shuyukh and certain, certain people you're taking as your teachers, I remember if those of you who are here in Ramadan, I told you about my Quran teacher of that particular time. Right? It was good. I didn't know any better. Uh, I didn't, at that time, complete a statement that I'm just thinking about now. I'm going to put this before you. And this is something that we need to really, really understand. My example, I started learning Quran much, much later in life. So I was sitting with the youngsters and the kids and I had my Quran teacher. He's a Quran teacher. He's a very nice guy. He's passed away now. May Allah have mercy upon him. Forgive him for his shortcomings. He's teaching me Alif Ba Ta Tha. And I'm just great, you know, because I get the chance to learn how to read Quran from him, which is excellent. But that's the limit of his knowledge. He's an excellent human being. He's a good Muslim. And he's doing a lot of good khidmah of deen. He's teaching Quran for free. And I'm indebted to him. A lot of the reward for all the books that I read is going to go to his. Any mizan of hasanat, right? So with all that being said, now let's do justice. Now after that, like I told you before in Ramadan too with a lot of you guys that were here. So at that particular time I was... Yani, the whole thing that even some of the guys asked before about the halal and the haram issue. Can I go eat McDonald's, Burger King, and all that other stuff? So I asked my Quran teacher, right? And then like I showed you, he gave me a particular fatwa that had come from Saudi of that particular time. That even if, even assuming if, if there was some pork mixed up in the grounding, you know, the grinding machine, then it's still going to be halal based upon that usul, that lil-akthari hukmul kul. 
I was like, hey, it's my teacher. It's my Quran teacher. Uh, you see, he knows, so let me follow it. Let me just go ahead. Right? But there's some sort of injustice taking place here. Who can pinpoint and who can find for me what the problem lies here? Where exactly was the problem? He's not a bad person. He brought the fatwa from Saudi, maybe that kind of there. Perfect. Exactly. That's the, the point I'm trying to make. That was not his field. That's not what he's good in. That is not his forte. That's not his expertise. And anything else that you can think along the same lines. Right? His forte, his expertise, even that's questionable, is just to teach Quran. Alif ba ta tha. You stick to what you're good at. In our day and our time, something similar that we see, Alhamdulillah, again, may Allah reward, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase people like, for example, a Dr. Zakir Naik. He's done tremendous amount of khidmah for the deen of Islam, Alhamdulillah. A very great individual, right? He's done so much, he kind of took on the legacy of Sheikh Ahmad Didat. I'm going to tie the two together because for me, when I was younger, I used to love Sheikh Didat's videos. He was a very great da'i of Islam. He used to give a lot of lectures, a lot of debates, and a lot of people accepted Islam because of his efforts. Even Sheikh Didat wasn't saved from this very same thing that our brother pointed out. That when you begin to come out of your sphere of expertise, we have problems. Do you guys know what happened to Sheikh Didat? Does anybody know his history? There is a time in South Africa when all of the ulama of South Africa went against him. Do you guys know that? You won't know that, you won't know. Because it doesn't make it to the news. Have you guys ever heard of a person called Rashad Khalifa? Anybody, anybody? A couple of you guys? He came up with the 19 theory, the number 19, the mathematical miracle of the Quran. Right? Everything is based on the number 19 and they do some weird mathematics and everything is a derivative of 19 and all hoo-ha. And people of that time were like, oh wow, Sheikh Ahmed Didat fell into that. He's like, oh look, look, you know, Quran has also got like, you know, mathematical miracles over here. And he was a very like uh, big supporter of this particular yani, individual and his particular theory of this thing. Does anybody know what happened to Rashad Khalifa after that? I'm sure you would know. He claimed Nubuat. He claimed to be a prophet in Egypt. And we're talking about like, what, 50, 60 years ago, right? This whole thing of his was all false. His whole claim was all false. And Sheikh Ahmad Didat fell into that particular trap because he didn't know. That was not his sphere of expertise. Now imagine all those people through Sheikh Ahmad Didat, who then became a follower of this Rashad Khalifa, who then claimed to be a prophet of Islam. You see where to where to where this could lead? Now the same exact kind of situation I also do notice with people like a Dr. Zakir Naik. They're good people. But sometimes bad things also do happen to good people. You need to stick to your sphere of influence. He's a very, very great debater when it comes to, for example, the Hindu religion, the Christian religion, the Bible, that's his sphere of expertise. He's not a faqih. 
By him engaging in fiqh, in reality he's doing dhulm. Remember what we started off with? Jahal murakkab? That can be compartmentalized. It doesn't have to be that just because you're a brain surgeon doesn't mean you make a very fine mechanic. Just because you are an IT professional and a software engineer doesn't mean that uh, you are good in medicine. Make sense? So just because you know X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that you know A, B, and C. What happens now if you go to your mechanic and you're like, man, you know mechanics pretty well. Can you uh, operate and do surgery on my arm? Can you reset my bone? It doesn't make any iota of sense. Now what happens when these individuals, they take their fame that they've established and they're following, and then they cross bounds over into a field that they're not really an expert in. When you want fiqh, you go to a faqih. When you want fatwa, you go to a mufti. When you want to debate against the Bible, then you go to a person who is an expert in that field. That only, only makes sense. But what we do is that we do with some injustice. We're like, yeah, he must be an expert here, so he must be an expert in everything. Right? That's not necessarily going to be the case. So I'm not going to speak, uh, speak about or talk about any particular individual thing that he has said. I'm just giving you by way of example. He's not going to be a muhaddith. He's not going to be a mufassir. He's not going to be a faqih. And like that, so when we're taking teachers, when we're taking shuyukh, we need to make sure that what I'm studying is coming from an expert of that field. If you want to study debate of a Christian or a Hindu, by all means, you should go become the student of a Dr. Zakir Naik. But if you want to go then learn fiqh, would it be wise to suggest that you go study under him? I don't think so. Because he hasn't spent 30, 40 years of his life to study fit like he has debating Christians about the Bible. I hope that makes sense. So be careful, be weary of who you take as your teacher because this ilm is your deen. And the example that I gave here, I didn't want to give an example of some sort of like studying from some particular kafir, some sort of disbeliever, which is even worse. A lot of times we take classes in universities at Nova and Mason you think you're doing a very good thing by taking an Islamic class or Islamic history and your professor is a non-Muslim. What are they going to teach you about Islam? They're going to sow the seeds of disbelief in your heart. And they're going to praise. Have you ever read uh, the biographical books of the Orientalists who are non-Muslims, people talking about the Prophet of Allah, You know what they will do? It's so cunning. It is so cunning. Especially if you're going to take these classes. He'll mention 999 beautiful praises of the Prophet of Islam. They'll mention and they'll elevate the status of Nabi Karim Salam. He was the greatest general that ever lived. He was the greatest politician that ever lived. He was able to rouse so many people behind a good cause. He was very good. He was very charitable. He was this and he was that. And he was all of these things. But you know what happens at the end? that one little thing that they put over there and you don't even perceive it because you are deluded and deluded and deluded and deluded and finally they'll mention one thing. And for us, because we took these people as our teachers, it's very difficult, like I mentioned before, like these students that take these teachers, it's very, very difficult to take that out. They sowed that one small little seed of disbelief in kufr and they covered it and they surrounded it with so many praises that you can't even perceive it. But then later on in life you do think that yeah, Rasulullah was a great general. He knew the art of fighting and warfare. Nabi Karim was a very charitable, he's a very generous person. He would spend lavishly. Rasulullah was a great family man. He was a great this and he was a great that. 
But that one seed that was there, was he the Nabi of Allah? This particular professor doesn't believe so. But he was a man. That's it. And you don't even know it, but it's kind of taken seat in your heart, in your subconscious. And that thing is going to continue and continue and continue. So be very careful who you take as your teacher. Because that, at the end of the day, you are going to become whatever your teachers are teaching. Inshallah, I think we're over our time now. We'll call it wraps here, inshallah. May Allah SWT accept from all of us. After the remaining salah, I think Shaykh Hudayfa will just kind of make a, some... Or should you make the announcement now? It's fine. Right after salah. After salah is my better. Jazakum khair.